what have you done when you know you're right, but the rest of the group disagrees with you? What have you done? What do you do when you know you're right, but the rest of the group disagrees? What would you do if I did an experiment and I ask Mimi, don't come forward, just that's Mimi, in case you didn't know, United Crowd, she comes to the 930? If, I was to, if she was to come here and we ask you something and you know you're right, but the entire crowd, including clergy and professionals and PhDs, and, and they all say to you, you are wrong. That would never happen. <laughs> I need another person who will help me. You just put me in the wrong position. The whole crowd. Yeah. So let me change the sermon right now. I'm just kidding. Social psychologists have stated that beliefs we hold are strengthened when we are around others who hold similar views. In 1950, psychologist Ash showed how people would give the wrong answer on a test in order to fit in with the rest of the group. And this is known as the ASH uh, experiment, conformity experiment. People were shown, as you can see on the screen, a line. And then they were asked to select the line of a matching length from the group of three. Do you see that? Would you say it's C? Okay. So the experiment had different groups of people and only one per group was truly a volunteer who had no clue. And maybe the person thought it was C, but because he or she was surrounded by clusters who, were, who would say A or B, the experiment showed that most were not like Mimi most um, changed their mind or expressed publicly that it was not C. I'm going to take you now to a story found in the Bible. And with that in mind, I want to see if it, if it upholds from a biblical standpoint. If you were to go into the New Testament, if you were to use the uh, Bible, um, there's, there should be quite a few in front of you, the pews. The second half, right? So the New Testament, 
you go way past what would feel or look like half of the book of the Bible, page 82 is where you find this story. We'll also have it in the screen. But let's see a story that I would like to focus on one particular angle of many different angles that we can see in this story. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. And if you are to look in your own Bible or the Pew Bible, I hope that you can sense that I want to focus on verses 3, then 5 through 7, and at the end finish with verse 9. This is what Luke chapter 19 verses 1 through 9 records. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was, Zacchaeus, was trying to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried down and was happy to welcome him. And all who saw it began to grumble, to grumble and said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. And I will add, for the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. Amen. Please know this, and I'll get to the story in just a moment. Back in those days, you had an illness, a contagious, infectious illness, for example, leprosy. You were considered an outcast. You could not be near the hub, 
the temple where people would gather to praise God Almighty, Jehovah. Someone with leprosy, an outcast. Okay. Likewise, a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus was considered, he was a Jew, worked for the Roman government. He was considered by his peers, other Jews, an outcast of the same level because his job was on behalf of the Roman government to collect taxes from people. But because the title includes the word chief, he was the supervisor. So he would, gather, he would have other subordinates who would do the actual legwork for him. So the fee was, I have to pay, I have to do the job to give to the taxes, so similar like today, the IRS. Then I have a staff that does it, and I surely need to make some money out of it, and it can't be the same pay like my subordinates. So the fees were inflated. And then, because of self-righteousness and greed, it was certainly abused. Not an honest person. Not pure at heart. Interestingly, you may know, you should know Zacchaeus. The name Zacchaeus means something along the lines of pure in heart. Of all names, of all names, this story has to do with someone who has no purity or lacks purity, but initially came to this world and was given a name that had to do with innocence and pure of heart. Hmm. So we see here, he was trying to see Jesus, or I should say, and yet, he was trying to see Jesus. I don't know for what reason. It doesn't tell us. But it tells us the point is that he was trying to see Jesus, but on account of the crowd, he could not. Does the crowd have good reason, his peers, to not want him there? Let's just, realistically, Yes, yes. He did come short. And not just physically. It's interesting. It makes that point. Hmm. So I'm going to maybe go a little bit. He's already short. He's already coming short in the, in the perception of others. So you know what? Kick him while he's down. The crowd was an impediment to the one who desired to see Jesus. Physically, he was small, so let's explore that just a little bit. If he was small or maybe not strong enough compared to the crowd, he didn't have the strength to push through the crowd. He didn't have the height to even level with the crowd, not even level couldn't compare himself to the rest of the crowd. And surely he was not innocent or pure at heart. So he did not have the credibility, the respect, the admiration, and the mercy of the people. But he was eager 
And he was so eager, we know it based on his actions. He ran ahead and he climbed a tree. Please note this. Back then, culturally speaking, it was undignified for a grown man to run. It may not make sense to us today. It doesn't matter. It's a cultural thing and we value every culture's things and practices. So a grown man and a businessman, I doubted he climbed trees. So talk about how eager he is for he does what is undignified. He's not going to get a break from people. And I think he doesn't know how to climb trees. Isn't it possible that people notice that? Just physically speaking, they must have noticed. Someone in the crowd must have noticed. He wanted to see Jesus. But they don't. It implies that they don't. And the only way people notice, it's because Jesus looked up and noticed him and called him by name and then calls him by that name that doesn't match the actions but calls him by name nonetheless and gives him the greatest honor to go to his house and be received as a guest. So if people didn't notice him because he came short, okay. Now they did. Now they did. And what did the people do when they noticed what Jesus was doing? They grumbled. So the grumbling begins and points fingers, disclosing publicly not only how he comes short, he's a sinner. The words were, were used there. He's a sinner. But so ironically, they're even pointing fingers at Jesus. The crowd, who knows best, clearly, publicly points out how sinful he is and actually compromises or attempts to compromise Jesus' credibility and admiration and respect. Question, what do you think is more difficult to experience? to feel like you are invisible to those around you, not worth their time, not worth their observation and consideration, or to feel ridicule, to receive the mockery, to receive the put down, for the truth is you have come short of something. Which one is a little better for you? Is that even a question? Some of us may go ahead and, and answer that, but I think there's something greater than that. Nobody wants to be invisible. Nobody. It hurts to be in a crowd and yet alone. It doesn't make sense to your self-worth, your self-esteem, your self-confidence to be in the midst of people and still feel like a stranger or that your worth or your situation has no value or at least less than mine. 
or that you're visible and it's ridiculous that you're making yourself or the situation you are dealing with ridiculous and a point of mockery. That crushes the soul. It crushes the soul when we are rejected in our own home, when we are strangers in our own house. Can you think of the moments when we are sharing a space with people that means we are to be close and yet we are farthest, farthest apart from each other? It is painful to gather, gather at a table with a companion and yet feel alone or gather in a community like this, unable to level with the rest of us. We gather here because God looked at us and has called you by name and continues to call you by name and because God loves you and we sang earlier you seek us God we were lost and you found us we gather here by the grace of God so today if you can relate to Zacchaeus Jesus came to seek you today if you relate like him please do know this but I also want to add another focus today, especially now that we're all three in one service. I want to highlight the crowd because social psychologists have also affirmed this, that when a crowd comes together, beliefs are stronger. So what kind of crowd are we? What kind of church family are we? We gather here to experience Jesus, to be filled by the love of Jesus Christ. May we not be a person who makes someone else feel invisible or of less value. As we live with others, and now you have to get very personal, whoever is the closest circle that you have, May you never be blinded or blinded enough by your self-righteousness, by our focus, by our aspirations, that we don't see the value of the people who are right here with us, starting in your homes. If you're married, starting with your spouse. If you're in a relationship, starting with that person. If you have children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews, starting with them. If you have neighbors, I don't know yet some of my neighbors. I'm getting there. Hurricanes tend to bring us together. Who knew? What would it look like if all of us owned that calling? Because we make the church, so each of us come together and promise we will not take others for granted. No one is of less value or ever to be compared to mine. They're not to be invisible. And then we bring this together to the body of Christ and we will see when a Zacchaeus comes through or all of a sudden, St. Vidalis becomes a Zacchaeus next Sunday. I don't know what happened. May I hope that you will see me and love me and take me and usher me to Jesus Christ. 
That's the kind of church and brothers and sisters that we are to be. When someone is considered an outcast, in whatever way, please know that Jesus does not conclude the same. Don't make that assumption for the Lord. We come short. But if you want to make anything equivalent to Jesus, I suggest you do the following. Just because Jesus does not see a person as an outcast, neither should we. How about that? Just because Jesus does not ignore him or her, neither should I. How about that? Just because Jesus does see a person worthy of forgiveness and salvation, so should we. How about that? We gather here because the shepherd gathered us first. God's love is an incarnational one. It's to be personified by you, by me. Do you? Will you? Do we need to start at home again? Continue in all of your settings Monday through, th through Saturday. On Sunday, be replenished. Be filled by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. Be part of a collective body that says, as we gather, we are welcomed by God. Therefore, we love first. May we see those who come eager to see God. Will we personify, excuse me, will we personify Jesus? May we be parking greeters. May we be at the welcome center as volunteers. May we be worship leaders. May we be choir members. May we be band members. Let's be ushers. Let's be preachers. Let's be teachers. Let's be in the computer. Let's be in the media tech. Let's be security. Let's be the pew. Check this out. Let's be a pew, a pew warmer. So warm it up, and when someone needs a seat, give it to them. Pew warmer in that sense, or pew releaser. When we gather, as you gather in all of your settings, including this one, be watchful for your families, for your friends, for the stranger, and even for the foe. For they may be hurting, they may be embarrassed, they may be coming short. They may be needing Jesus. As we shift now to receive the gift of grace, receiving Holy Communion, I will ask worship leaders to begin to set Ushers, for those of you who will help me serve, 
begin to make your way. The same way we have revised our normal schedule so that you prepare for the storm, may we be mindful of those who do not have the tools of life to prepare for life storms. Let's welcome people. Let's welcome one another. And let's take it a step deeper. Let's not just be nice. Nice concerns me. Nice is good, don't be mean. Okay, if I have to pick between those two, be nice. But, but we're to be more than nice. We're to love deeply. We're to see people right where they are. And we are to usher them to the grace of God.